Welcome to Sin City. Get ready for in-depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you cinephiles. Only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images. And now, to your host, Nick Manenses. Hello there. Welcome back to the city. And what better way to introduce our Citizen Kane for this very, very special episode. I'm talking, of course, about Emmanuel Akinola, our longest-running guest, all the way from Houston, Texas. Hello there, Emmanuel. How do you do? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's great to hear. It's been a long time since we've had you here on the show. I miss our 1v1 moments here on the podcast. And you've made it on the right time, because today we will finally be discussing Citizen Kane, just in time for its 80th anniversary, and Emmanuel's favorite film, by the way, to all those new here. Now, Emmanuel, yes. I was wondering if you could help me navigate through all this, because I have to say, I'm a little intimidated to do this episode, because Citizen Kane is, without a doubt, the biggest, the most influential film ever covered here on the show, and probably the greatest. So. Why do you say we do all we can to give this film the proper respect and justice here on the show? Yeah, we will. Um, I'm sure we're going to go into deep dive about it because there's so much to love about this film. I mean, yes, it's on top of a lot of people's top list of best films ever made, but there's a reason for it. You know, there's a reason this film is constantly talked about. I mean, for years, for decades, even back, it, it went into obscurity like around the 50s and a little bit later, but then it came back up. But there's a reason that people keep talking about it, because I watched this film myself uh, one time, and I was like, this is amazing. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a great film. Definitely. We all can agree with those sentiments as well. I've had the pleasure of rewatching it last night as well, and it still holds up, by the way, because I don't even know where to begin with this like first off you're right citizen kane is on the top of many people's lists whether you find that cliched or overrated that is definitely up to you but even if citizen kane is not number one it's at least close to the very top at best two or three even that says a lot but one thing where we can begin this episode would be what made it earn its title as the greatest film of all time well for one, I believe it's the gorgeous and groundbreaking cinematography by none other than Greg Tolland, because in, it's not the first film ever made, that's for sure, but other films, they use a variety of, of different components, like art direction, cinematography, and lighting, but Citizen Kane uses all of them, a combination of all, and back then cinematography was used just for aesthetic, just to show how cool the visuals, the setting are, but in Citizen Kane, every shot, even the tiniest close-up and wide shot, it helps to enhance the story. It's one of the perfect, if not the perfect example of visual storytelling. No, you're right. I mean, um, so Toland, Greg Toland, he was, he was already a big fifth cinematographer at the time. He was working with Samuel Goldwyn Productions. 
And so he didn't like where his direction was going with his career, and he, he wanted to do more experimental work. So he saw that Wells was up and coming as a director, and he wanted to work with him. And of course, when they worked on this film together, Wells really allowed him to do all type of experimental camera work and everything. Because Wells, in Wells' mind, he was coming from a theatrical background. And Wells didn't like all these rules that were imposed on cinema at the time. You know, like, this shit has to be shot a certain way, and you can't show the ceilings. Like, these, you look on Citizen Kane, there's a lot of shots of the ceilings because they use a lot of angle shots. Because Wells wanted to break away from that rule, among other things. And, and what's really great about this film is that it uses deep focus a lot. And it's also awesome that Tolan and Wells, they use wide-angle lenses a lot. So you get a lot of detail, a lot of rich detail into the into the image with each scene that you look at that you're looking at, and that really adds to you know the depthness and amazingness of the awesome nature of you know the lighting and the shadows at work and some of the scenes. Right. So yeah, it's really it's really a feast for the eyes. Exactly. Right on. Yeah, and based on Orson Welles as well to quote him. I've always loved Hollywood, but I don't think that love was ever reciprocated because, and at the same time, it continues to amaze me that Orson Welles, he was very young when he started this film. He was 25 years old. And keep in mind, this was his very first film ever. And back then, before he made this in Kane, he was best known for doing these plays, theater, and radio dramas. He was a child prodigy, in essence. No, he was. Um, like, he, the, there's one, he did a lot of Broadway. Um, he had, he had a, the Mercury Theater, which was very popular on Broadway. And then he did the, the famous The War of the Worlds radio play, which, you know, like, it was so vivid in his storytelling that people actually, when, when they were listening to the radio, they actually thought that there was an actual invasion happening on on earth, on earth on the planet at the time so there was this mass panic and so studio heads and studio executives in hollywood they saw that and it's like wow this guy can really move an audience and so for year, for a few for quite some time they're kind of trying to court him trying to get wells to direct a film and wells turned down he turned down warner brothers they sent him like three scripts he turned it down oh and then eventually rko yeah turned down warner brothers and then uh, RKO Pictures, they they uh, they got in touch with him, and they offered him uh, you know to do his first film, and uh, it just started from there. He, he had a lot of stipulation, of course, because Wells, being the artist that he is, he wanted to maintain creative control, and they gave it to him, which at the time was unheard of. Like a lot of studios did not allow that at all. Oh really? So, wow. I... so yeah, it was unprecedented uh, what Wells was doing at the time. I did not know that. Wow, and of course, let's all give credit where credit is due. Apart from Orson Welles, who not only directed, but also helped co-write, produce, and starred in the film, no less. We all, of course, have to give credit to the supposed court jester himself, Herman J. Mankiewicz, or Mank, because he created this canvas of a screenplay, and he had, if the last year's film Mank is anything to go by he had a very tight deadline and the biggest challenge to him was how can we tell a man's story which spans 80 years in no more than just two hours and he 
pull it all off. And it's no surprise why Citizen Kane won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay at the 1942 Oscars. It's impressive. I felt I should mention Mank's contribution to the film as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Because there's a lot of controversy, you know, and there's one woman in particular, Pauline Keel, who a film historian who, you know, who said that, who she alleged that, you know, Herman Rankowitz was the sole author or something like that effect, which a lot of evidence doesn't show that that's the case. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that Wells did contribute a lot. But but Mankiewicz was indispensable. I mean, he he provided a lot of the backstory. I mean, even with Rosebud, I was reading up, I was researching, and a lot of that backstory of the, the damaged childhood came from Mankiewicz. Like, Mankiewicz had a damaged childhood as well. And so, um, but yeah, they pulled him and Wells, they pulled from a lot of sources. They pulled from people that they knew, their own lives and also, but the main inspiration was of course, uh, William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. who, uh, who Mankiewicz did know personally. And there, in the, and it's believed that, you know, he was exiled from his social circle and Mankiewicz was mad about that. So he wanted to critique him, the person that, you know, ousted him, but, um, but yeah, it's just amazing that the story comes from lived experience, you know, but also these bigger than life uh, people, you know, characters in real life. Right. Like yeah. Hearst. Exactly. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. The legend, the, or not rather legend, but actually a fact because, yeah, like you mentioned, Mank based Charles Foster Kane on Hearst, who is a very notorious yellow journalist, much like Kane is. And he also doesn't approve of Hearst's provoking of the Spanish-American War, if that's what we're led to believe, right? Yeah, you're right. Like, um, I think in the film it's very explicit in one scene, because I think they mentioned the war, either they implied it or I believe it was heavily mentioned or implied. And then there's this one scene where um, Kane is dictating or talking to these people, and he says that I will provide them more. You know, like, he has, he's so confident and and his power, his influence as a newspaper, you know, titan. And it was very much, the newspapers were very much in control. Like a lot of, there a lot of, they had a lot of power in those days. They still do, I guess, to some extent now, but back then it was unprecedented. You know, like Hearst would, there's reports that Hearst, um, historians believe that Hearst would give out these fictitious attacks or that were happening to Americans or to citizens. And during the war, during the Spanish-American War, and that would drum up, people would react very viciously to that. And it would drink up like this anti-Spanish rhetoric or, you know, and so it's, the film plays on that. The film plays on how much power this big titan can have, can have you know, on the, on the populace. Right. Agreed. Yeah. And we'll get to that very soon as well. And as we all imagine, William Randolph Hearst did not take well to Citizen Kane for its negative, unflattering depiction of him that he tried to close down the venue for the film and he even accused Orson Welles of being a communist, which again was a huge deal back then in the pre-Cold War years and even more so in the Cold War where anyone working with or for Hollywood was accused of being linked to the Communist Party. So yeah. Oh yeah, like it was a different culture back then. It was very much a, you know, a pro-American, 
ideal, I guess, more traditional mindset back in the days. And um, anyone that was on anyone that was seen as un-American was, you know, that was the enemy. And so communist was a big thing that back then. Uh, and it became worse as the Cold War came on, you know, with the Red Scare and everything. But yeah, Wells was. They they tried to target Wells a lot. Like there's reports of like they tried to get him. They tried to uh, get him with a 14 year old girl to destroy his career. They, I think the one person that was working for Well for Hearst put a 14 year old girl in his hotel room to, so that when he was seen with it, that would be bad publicity. You know that would destroy his reputation. So they really targeted him. Um, you know because of this film because of what he's trying to say. But me personally, I think, I think Wells, Wells knew. I think Wells saw that Manka was was critiquing Hearst, but I think Wells was using that as a story to kind of show that this whole idea of the American dream, this whole idea of you being on top, it really means that you're lonely at the top, mm-hmm. you know. And then you see the consequences of his power, you know, his influence among the among the people that he knows, the relationships that he has. Right. And so I think that's a I think that's why the film stays a lot with me because and I think that's why it stays a lot for a lot of people is that it's talking about the cost of having that that power. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, and good timing too because that's what we'll be getting to right now. We'll be now diving deep into the the story and the themes of Citizen Kane, which is going to be a long, long ride. First off, to your point, yeah, it's at its core, Citizen Kane is essentially a deconstruction of the whole American dream. It's the film shows it's mostly outside. It looks very glamorous and fulfilling, but when you, the deeper you go, it's not at all what you hoped it would be. It's all more talk talk presentation than than actually fulfilling your dreams cuz he it's more the journey itself is more fun, but the end result when you get there, it's not what the journey promised at all just ask charles foster kane yeah it's like in his case you know a lot of normally a lot of people they're chasing the dream but in his case the dream was kind of thrust on him because it's like he his family his mother in particular with this banker that she hired i believe they found this wealth they found this gold and they became rich and so she, of course, to look after her son, she built a trust for him, you know, to look after him. But, but he became entrusted with, um, with the money, and so he bought a newspaper chain. And so you never really got a sense that, because this wealth was thrust on him, he never really, he never really was able to grow. Or he was never really able to go through a normal adult a child to adult to adolescence to adult process you know it's kind of like he had to pull responsibility was trust on him and so you can kind of see that he was trying to it's like he's trying to compensate for something that he was lacking inside mm-hmm. at least that's what i got from it and you can kind of see that in how he's very um aggressive and and almost anti-social to people because he sees not, I'm not saying that he's a sociopath, but because he has that power, because he has that influence, he, he doesn't need, he doesn't feel the need to 
be kind to people you know like he's always accustomed to things have going his way because that's all things have always gone that way but then in the, in the sense that's not how ordinary life works so you're seeing it you're essentially seeing a guy that's that was wasn't able to evolve or mature normally he was just kind of thrown into this um this power this sphere of influence and that kind of corrupted his his upbringing, how he came across, how he came, he got old as a person. Right, yeah, and now you mentioned that's a question I've been wanting to ask you personally about Kane, because think of this whole film, Citizen Kane is, simply put, a tragedy, almost a Shakespearean tragedy, but then there's the message of nature versus nurture, uh, fate or free will, and I'm wondering, Kane's entire predicament, his downfall, his change into this selfish control freak would you say it's more because of his upbringing or more because of his own choices or a bit of both actually uh the choices that he went through yeah um it might be a bit of both but i feel like it, i think faith plays a lot into it because you know he didn't choose that wealth it was just thrown on him and i believe that but the choices along the way he wasn't able to cope with it so a lot of his choices we were making were probably instinctual you know like what can help me get what could help me get through this situation or these things that are happening and um but yeah it's just i think it's a bit of both i think it's a bit of faith that's involved and also like him not being able to cope with it, yeah. Mm, I see. Well, really, that's a really good interpretation, yeah, and personally, I feel that it's mostly contributed to Kane's own choices, because if you think about it, his parents, who basically forced this agenda on him, they're gone, they're out of the picture now, which means he's his own person, his own man, so he had the chance to be better, to actually start afresh, become a better person, rather than what he is in the film, but he didn't take it, so it's his fatal flaw, essentially, and like most characters with fatal flaw, Kane's downfall is entirely of his own doing. That's my personal thought. Yeah, I think it is his own doing because he wasn't able to, he was always looking to fill that void and he couldn't find it. You kind of see it in all the relationships that he's with, especially with his best friend. And then also his, uh, his first wife and then the second wife that he had. And so he just wasn't, the flaw, I believe the flaw that he had was Unable to an ability to form a connection with somebody, right? Because yeah. his mind it was always about it was always about what's in it for me. What's how can I benefit from this interaction instead of? But but then again, that's all he knows because he was thrust into that. So he doesn't know how to meaningfully form a connect a meaningful connection with somebody because the. the I, and that's the thing that some people have is that because you have all your needs met, it can kind of mess up your your interpretation of how the world works and how people work too. Right. Yeah. And so his flaw his flaw was basically you know, not not being able to 
form connections. And then his the alienation that he causes with everybody that he uh, encounters, especially his best friend and his two wives, that's what led to his loneliness. Right. Yeah. That fatal flaw. Mm -hmm. Cain. Yeah, that's why I interpret Cain. He is a taker and not a giver. Right. And another one of his fatal flaws would have to be pride. His arrogance because even his best friend uh, Jedediah Leland said that he wants to be loved on his own terms everything that happens in his life from his wife family his lifestyle everything has to fit according to his own set of rules and beliefs but as Cain learns the hard way that's not how life works like it, it would be perfect of course but it's not, it doesn't mean it's perfect all the time that if you have everything your way. Yeah, yeah, because um, you see it a lot in, you see it a lot in like, <clears throat> a lot of people that are rich are politicians. It's like, because, and I keep coming back to it, they've, they've, had, they've had lives on silver spoons, you know, where they, everything's been fed to them. And so it creates this expectation of entitlement of, you know, like, oh, I'm entitled to this because my life has reflected that, you know, I have this wealth, I have this power, so I'm, that means that I'm worthy or that I'm above you and that you should act accordingly. But then in real life, that's not how people act. You know, a lot of people have to work for what they had. A lot, a lot of people actually go out to make meaningful connection with people because that's how we are as human beings. That's how you make friends, or friends that last anyway. But with, with, um, with Kane, I think it was because he, he he had this this depression that he was torn away from his his mother mm. from the family from his family and that's kind of what the film implies with the revelation of what Rosebud was and how like because of that anger that's what's driving him that's what's driving all his bad his negative pot his negative traits personality traits and so that can happen a lot I mean you look at like a good example would be Donald Trump, you know, um, Don, no, I'm serious. Like Donald Trump, he, he identifies with King for, which is crazy, but it makes sense because Trump, we all know this is like a dirty secret. Now we all know Trump had a trouble, but troubled childhood. I mean, his father was probably very mean to him and, you know, and he was kind of thrust that empire, you know, was thrust on him too. And so this just goes to show that there is a president of these type of people out there that have this power, that have this influence. And you look at why they're so mean or why they're acting this way. You can even look at celebrities too, like some actors as well. And then you can, but it's, we're always, you're always informed by how your parents treated you and your childhood. Like everybody's informed by that. And I think that's what the film is showing is that because he was torn away from his family, that's what created this monster, this, this, I have to, you know, lash out or get people to do what I want because right. he can't wrestle with that trauma that he went through. Right. Yeah. At least that's my interpretation. Oh, no, no. I, I, I had a similar interpretation to that because, yeah, keep in mind that Cain was ripped apart from his parents and 
from what we gather, seeing how Kane turned out, Mr. Thatcher was not really the best parental influence in Kane's life. So Kane is essentially, yeah, like you mentioned, just a, a child in an adult's body just lashing out at the world for not giving him the love that he deserved, that he really needed. So Kane from our both our guesses he was never allowed to mature properly because ha being rich having all this possessions this privilege doesn't exactly equate to a happy life as well and to what you i remember what you mentioned to me like many months ago that when you are in business or politics it reveal removes the mask it reveals more of your true character your true personality what you are in the dark oh yeah like obama obama's had a saying where i think in an interview he said that when you become president it just reveals who you who you really are your true self because and it makes sense because you have this power you have this influence and so a different type of personalities react to react to that like let's say for example if you're more uh conscious of you know environmental things or you're more conscious about you know things that are more for you know the working class if you come from a working class background you're probably going to do more to help the working class in terms of laws executive laws that you pass if you're more of like a rich person or you're more of like you don't really have connections to the working class or you're more of a military person where you, you think that our country is more, you know, the, our military is more important, then you're going to enact more laws of that. So it just, it, it, it reveals more about you, you know, in terms of, the presidency is just one example, but I think all politics in general, you know, is the same thing. Right. It reveals who you truly, who you truly are. Exactly, yeah. And I think now that's where the title Citizen Kane has its meaning because the title Citizen Kane, not just Kane, because Kane is an American citizen. He may have all this wealth, this power, this notoriety, but at the end of the day, he's a citizen or more specifically a man, just like each and every one of us, because there's this Sometimes there are people, who, powerful people, rich people, who think because of what they have, their position in society, they think that they are like, you know, like gods, that they're more than just a man. But no matter how many we can all and we all have achieved great things in our life, but no matter those great things, we're still at the end of the day human beings, which is another thing that the American dream dictates too, that all men are equal before the law and you can start from anywhere you can be great regardless of your standing in society but at the end of the day we're we're just human we're only human yeah you know it's it's um it's something about being this is a side note but there's just something about being rich and powerful that changes who you are you know it doesn't happen to everybody that's rich i mean there are good there are very nice rich people out there but it seemed like it was a common thread of once you have that influence you just become completely unhinged like it's, it's like normal normal rules that apply to people they don't seem to apply to you or they're not as big a deal to you and it and you become part of this new class of people you know it just becomes like a class thing and 
you can kind of see it in how they interact with people and and I'm talking about celebrities, politicians, billionaires, you know, you look at how they treat other people, you look at how they do do things, you know, do business. And it's just there's a complete there's almost a complete disregard for I wouldn't say the law, but for accountability for, you know, normal things that people would try to live by or try to you know, not do try to do good by. And so it's just something about, and I think this film shows that too. Uh, this, film, this film shows in the spades, with Kang in particular, how you have this influence and it's just, you become, it's, you know that, that saying, um, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, mm-hmm. absolutely. Right, yes. That's exactly what this, this film, and I think in a lot of cases, if you look through history and contemporary examples of people and, that are rich, it's the same thing. Right. They become part of this class and they just can't, they just become unhinged. It's just like morality doesn't apply to them. Exactly. Yeah. And that reminds me of something you mentioned about a few minutes ago, how you, when you said Kane isn't a sociopath, I agree on that one, but Kane would, the right word to describe Kane, he is probably a good example of uh, a narcissist if you think about it like someone who he's even a control freak someone who he just has this need to control everyone around him that he needs to prove his worth that only he and he alone can be is in top of everything has a solution to everything which a small moment in the film that reminds me an example of Kane's narcissism, not a huge example, but just a small one. What does he name his son's name from with his first wife, Junior? He named the kid after himself, which is, it's not saying that that's really a bad thing. There are many people out there, I bet, who name their kids after themselves and aren't egocentric narcissists, but Kane, he views people as though they were extensions of himself. He refers to people as if they're products of his own. Yeah, yeah. Like, you look at, like, um, you look at the one good example is when he fired Jediah, you know, when Jediah wrote, the, wrote a bad review about Susan. And so, you know, Kane was furious, but he was like, okay. So he, but he went out to finish the review. So it's like, so it's kind of like a fu because at the same time he's mad, but he's also saying, "You're not even that good a reporter anyway, so I'm going to finish it for you." You know, he's like he's, he's like he's trying to bring him down, this, you know, even though he's already firing him. And so it had to add insult to injury almost. Right. And so it's just this. It's just a great example of him being that narcissist of being where he, he can never do a wrong he's always on the right and you know that's just a person that's just bound to fail like they're bound to something bad is going to have to happen to them to realize you can't do that you know exactly that's kind of what happened King. right and even and he as a further testament to his complete massive ego even his two wives uh the president's niece and susan alexander 
they're not just his wives they're his trophies essentially you know have you heard of the term trophy wife as in a woman who is with a, a famous rich man as a way to cultivate their their image just to look all beautiful and follow their husband everywhere they go and mostly more like objects rather than human beings essentially because Cain married the president's wife I mean, no, 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 the president's niece as a way to like, nice, nice. boost his credentials. He's already one of the most famous yellow journalists and a soon-to-be president. He then married his this other woman, Susan Alexander. My guess is because she, well, I guess she married her simply as a way to... Um, because she's, she's a great singer, well, according to him anyway, as a way to boost his image as well, his sense of superiority. So both women, they're actually victims of Cain, simply ways for him to fuel his massive ego. Yeah, I guess this film is so, is so profound because it's so insightful because this is exactly how, and this happens today, you know, rich, rich white men, they go out and they get these wives and they act a certain way and you know because it's all about the image it's all about the power it's all about the influence right and and so I like how this film shows that she, they really suffered they, these women in particular Susan she really suffered because of what he what Cain was doing to her she did not want to be a singer she did not want to do anything that he wanted her to do but he had to prop her up to make himself feel better and yes, he did love her, so I guess he did see potential in her. But then again, it was an unrealistic potential. It's like he was putting her on a pedestal because she didn't want to do the things that he, he wanted her to do. You know, if he truly loved her, he would have saw that and not done what he did. But he was just so caught up in what he wanted from her that that's what she almost she committed. She almost committed suicide. Mm -hmm. She tried to commit suicide because of all the crap that, that he was putting her through. And so it just shows that you know, Cain, he, he's not aware of his actions, but it's almost as if he's, he, he can't be aware of it because he, he's not used to being aware of it because he's so used to everything. He's so used to this myopic th way of thinking where it's just about my needs and what I want right. instead of what the other person wants. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's... Again, there she's merely an extension of Cain himself, and that's another trait of narcissists. They see everything. It's like they're looking. At, they see people as mirrors, reflections of themselves. And part of being a narcissist is controlling every aspect of that person, from their hobbies, what they eat, even what they wear, and. As you mentioned about Cain's myopic view, another aspect of a narcissist is that they refuse to believe it's their fault. And again, they believe they're above all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a personality disorder. I mean, it's classified as one in the diagnostic manual. Um, you know, some it's a very particular type of disorder, but some people have it. And, you know, it's this inflated sense of confidence, of ability that's unrealistic. You know, it's like we all have faults. We all have limitations. But 
with narcissists, they refuse to see that. And um, I think it could be, I'm not a psychiatrist, it could be trauma-related, but it could be maybe it's genetics or brain disorder or whatever, but it's some type of defect because you're, you're, you're not you're not facing reality. You're not operating with within the confines of reality. Because in reality, you would know that, okay, I do have limitations. I might have some skills, but you know, maybe I have to use uh, train myself or get more experience in these skills. But narcissists, they just go in and they think they can do it all, even though they probably had no experience whatsoever. And they just fly on the seat of their pants. And even if they fall flat, it's still not their fault, you know. And yeah, it's, and I think Kane fits that to a T. But I think Kane, and what makes this film a tragedy is that he does realize in the end that, you know, it was his fault. And that's kind of the sad thing. Mm -hmm. But they will see little too late, too. And that's another yeah. realistic part also about human human nature, too. Because he was, when he realized it was all his fault, he was on his last legs on the last few days of his life on his deathbed literally because in our last moments when we are on the last few moments of our life we regret we begin to self-reflect contemplate on the wrong things we did trying to look back on our mistakes our errors and that's essentially what happened to Cain and that's another thing I think helped make Citizen Kane such a relevant film even today because it's a film about the human condition essentially probably the perfect example of the human condition in film because we all desire something in our lives we covet and like I mentioned many episodes ago that's what life is as Citizen Kane shown it's literally a jigsaw puzzle there's always that missing piece in our lives that we may or may not find in the end Oh yeah, and that's that's the um, that applies to like the mystery and nature of the film too, because uh, the reporter um, Thompson he's trying to find out what Rosebud means, and he can't find out what it means. But then to the viewer, you know what it means. But then like, um, but yeah, we're always feeling, we're always trying to fill that void. We're always trying to, because I believe we're all we're all brought here for a reason, for a purpose. And we, until we find that purpose, we're restless until, until we, you know, until we find it. And uh, but people that are, you know, people that could be seen as they have everything, usually at times, usually a lot of times, they have the same problems that you and me have, that regular people have. I mean, there's people that I just saw that um, this I can't remember, but there's actors in particular that have anxiety, you know, like actors that have been doing acting for years, you know, you think they'd be on top of their game, but they still have anxieties uh, and depression. Uh, you know, all these prominent people, you're like, you, you think to yourself, you're like, wow, this guy has everything. This guy should be on cloud nine, but no, he has anxiety, antidepressant medication. And so, yeah, we're all normal. We're all trying to fill that void, I guess. Right. Agreed, yeah, and... Of, or we're all coping with struggle. Right, yeah, and at the same yeah. time as oh, well... Oh, sorry, are you going to say something? 
No, I'm done. I'm done. Well, basically, I'm sorry about that. Um, also, I think we should. I want to talk a bit more about the film's cinematography because that, to me, that is Citizen Kane's crown jewel. It's bread and butter, essentially. It's again one of the perfect examples of visual storytelling yes. ever. A, a, a single shot can say multiple sentences. No, scratch that. An entire essay, actually. Because every shot in the film is not wasted. It adds something to the story. It helps convey the emotions about the character without a single word even said. One earlier example that reminds me of this is in the flashback when Kane is a kid playing with his sled. When we in the inside, Mr. Thatcher is with Kane's parents discussing his future, which Kane at this point doesn't know just yet. And while all this is happening, Kane or little Kane is in the background playing with his sled, which is very obscure and kept at a minimum. It really helps to add the the sense of isolation in the film. The film does it a lot, actually. There are plenty of wide shots of isolated interior shots design of Kane alone, which really shows that beneath all that wealth and grandeur, he is a lonely man. The, the, the way the shadows work, I believe there's one scene where, he's, where um, Kane is arguing with somebody or he's talking with somebody. And he's he's silhouetted he's silhouetted in shadow, so like he's he's almost like this evil figure, this figure that you can't tie down. Then when he stepped in the light, he started he starts speaking out more. He starts revealing his um, his aggression and his his power. And so you're seeing how like insidious he can be almost uh, through that through that use of shadow. And then also like the, the placement, like in the mass mise-en-scene, how things are composed in the shot. I mean, there's one particular where um, I think Kane's mistress is in the bed and then um, there's a reporter or somebody that's that's, um, ice, that's in a frame, like he's, he's enclosed in a frame. And then you have another person that's off to the side. And you can tell that took a lot of blocking, a lot of, um, effort to put to send a message to the screen of the placement of these characters in relation to the story. And then there's also good use of optical illusions of like how, you know, Orson Welles is a tall guy. He's like sick with something. But they were able when he was walking, then the beginning, one of the beginning scenes when he's dictating, I believe his will, or he's talking to somebody and he walks off towards the windows. You could, they did optical illusion where because they're using the wide-angle lenses or because they're using that, they were able to make the walls, the windows look larger than they actually were, I believe. And so that was amazing. I mean, like, And Wells is already a huge guy, so the fact that they were able to warp his size and, like, unwarp the size of the windows, that was insane. You know, it's just, it's just amazing wow. how they were able to do that. Yeah, yeah, the film uses that a lot, too. Also, they use this technique, as you mentioned, called chiaroscuro, which is using yes. lighting and shadows to convey emotion, which is something that would be emphasized with future noir films, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon, and pretty much the entirety of Alfred Hitchcock's films, even. And 
Yeah, yeah, it's a big. You go first. You go first. No, this is like uh, this guy named. I'm sure you know who this is. It's a famous painter called Caravaggio, and like a lot of people looked at his paintings because he has very sharp shadows, very sharp um, edges, and you know he did a lot of religious paintings and. The shadow, where the shadows come from, where the lighting is going, tells it, it evokes the mean the the mood of the the moment that's all that's on the painting. And so, a lot of artists, including Wells, I imagine, use that to full effect in their films. In this film, and that inspired a lot of film noir as well, like where the shadows are and where the light source is, and how that can tell a story, and give and give um. And give a feel for the mood of certain scenes or the, the, the tone of the whole of the whole movie. Exactly. Yeah, and also to add more to the film cinematography, another aspect it has is the use of low angle shots to emphasize the power. Perhaps the perfect example of this in what I think is the film's signature scene is during Kane's speech as governor, where the camp where there's a giant poster behind him and the camera does a low angle shot of him or as it's called a Hitler cam which really shows emphasizes his power how well how powerful he is in fact even the the entire scene is framed with the audience all obscured by shadow and the poster front and center symmetrical with a huge light which gives off the feeling that Kane is like a god a godlike figure a demigod actually yeah if you look and if you look closely i'm sure you, he's in the center of the frame he's i think in the rules of rule of rule of thirds he's like he's like at the center point where he's it's the most aesthetically pleasing in the image and we're like all the eyes all the directions going towards and then um but yeah that was a great scene of like because that scene itself that shot itself tells you all you need to know about the power this guy has you know, and like, I mean, of course, he has a poster behind him, but then he has that podium, and he has, and you use that with the low angle shots and the, and the pullback shots of the crowd and crowd that's listening to him. It's almost, it's almost, you know, messy. It's not messianic, but it's almost godlike. It's like it's this guy. It's, it's like he has his pulpit, and it's like everything is direct. It's like all he's controlling all of reality from there. It's it's weird. It's this feeling of, of godhood from that. It's it's crazy, right? And exactly. And the fact that it's called a Hitler cam also emphasizes that earlier scene in the beginning where we see Kane with none other than Adolf Hitler himself, and it shows that how Kane has gotten drunk on his power and authority. He's essentially becoming like this dictator figure, almost. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's what the film is going for, uh, and that's why I like it a lot. Kane is not, Kane is not really a sympathetic character. He's empathetic. I think there's a difference. He's because what sympathetic means like, oh, I can relate, like I can relate to that, or oh, I've been in those shoes, that type of thing. I think empathetic is is really is why this film. I think he's empathetic, and I think that's why this film is so well regarded because yes, he's a terrible person, like he's done all type of stuff, but then at the end you realize why he's that way, and so the empathy can be like, oh, okay, I can understand why that happened 
I may not agree with it. I may not sympathize with it, but you can understand why. And that's why, like, me as a viewer, that's why I like the film a lot, because I can understand why he became that way. And it's sad. You know, it adds to the tragedy of it. And, um, but to your point, yeah, Kane is, Kane is a, he's an enigmatic figure. He's, he's, inc- he's crazy. He's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And another shot, because I just love talking about it. The shots, every shot in the film is just beautiful. Even today, 80 years later, it's, it's just genius how they did this without any words being spoken for the most part as well. And another good example is towards the end after Susan leaves Kane and after he trashes her room, we get a shot of Kane walking down a hallway and we see his reflection in different in a a separate hallway, which adds to the element of he's literally, or in this case figuratively, reflecting on what he has done. Now that is a fine example of visual storytelling and when i mean this i'm not calling it one off but the whenever we're addressing citizen kane and its accomplishments it's not one of but the it's really even the film it's associated with greatness it's synonymous with the very definition of greatness like the citizen kane of this or that unless of course you're the room the film the room which is described as the citizen kane of bad movies as well like it's genius really like yeah citizen kane has become an like you said it's become synonymous with greatness it's i mean there's a reason it's called the greatest film of all time because you look at it and you see all the artistry at work and it, it will stand the test of time for years a lot of years down the future and that's why it's used as a benchmark for anything that's good um because it's used so many techniques that just weren't yeah there was techniques that he used that would that pre-existed it but he was able to combine all of them in a nice um refreshing way for the viewer for an audience that you know wasn't done before or that wasn't seen before so yeah that's why it will stand the test of time agreed yeah and and also another thing that helps it stand the test of time and what really made it Ernest title as the greatest film of all time is because prior to Citizen Kane, most films had a basic linear three-act structure, but Citizen Kane opted for a a non-linear structure, something that many films, particularly ones that come to mind like uh, Memento, the entirety of Quentin Tarantino's films would use this technique. Right off the bat, in the start of the film, what do we get? We get the death of our protagonist. The effect happens before the cause, when it's usually the other way around before. The audience already knows the what, but what they know, want to know is the why, which already hooks them right from the very start. Yeah, it's a technique that a lot of, film, a lot of shows use, a lot of films too. You look at like Mission Impossible 3, you look at Breaking Bad, it's the idea of in media res have you heard of that in media res uh, where you start in the middle of the action i believe so yeah yeah so in, in media res is basically i mean even odysseus even um i'm sorry even homer used it in the odyssey i think that was the first known example of in media res where you start in the middle of the action of the story and so that acts as a hook for the audience to get invested. Oh, okay, this is happening. I want to know what's the backstory behind this. So that's why you keep reading, you keep watching the film or reading the book 
or reading the script because you want to know what led to that particular plot point in the beginning that hooked your interest. And so it's amazing that Wells used that technique. And he used that technique uh, through the use of unreliable narrator, of the use of, of like, um, well, the non, the using him using the unreliable narrator accentuated or accentuated that interest because you're looking at all these different people in the story that are giving different viewpoints of who Cain was. And so that drum, that can drum up interest in who this person really was. Right. And so, but all, but at the same time, it's because he died in the beginning, you really, you want to know what are the events that led to that. And that's interesting. And it's great that Wells used that famous technique of in media res or, you know, where you start in the middle of the action or at the end of something. And then you work your way back from that to, you know, hook the audience and, and along the journey, you inform them of what led to that. So that's a great technique that he used. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And again, to add to the significance of jigsaw puzzles, that the nonlinear narrative can be it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle because you don't there's no particular order in which you start a puzzle you just start as you want it to be and again to your point about the unreliable narrators that's something else i noticed because it's told from three different perspectives but at this point in the film the characters that Mr. Thompson interviews Jed Adia, Susan, Mr. Bernstein, all of them are old and aging. So who the extent to how accurate their portrayal of Cain is is going to be a debate for many, many years to come. Yeah, and that's kind of real life too. Like there is some semblance of truth, but there's always a variation of it. Whenever you interview people you know about you know after somebody dies or you know a famous person that dies or whatever and you hear like yeah you'll see certain common things that, that come up but you might also hear some contradictory things you might also hear like oh he was kind of an asshole this time or he oh he was really nice to me in this one you know and it's like and that's what adds to this um that's reality you know like we're all we're all we're all complex people like we're all not we're all not nobody has everybody figured out you know and so I think that's why the film is is really good because um, and very unique because it's playing on that that reality where it, it, we're all enigmatic. We're all you know we we can't all be solved. We're all we're all puzzles, and I think that's I like that the film went that route in regards to Kane's character, which I think is a, a realistic way to do it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's always, nothing is one-sided. Everything has, it's very multi-dimensional, has different layers to it. Like Winston Churchill, the Brits love Winston Churchill. Who doesn't? Like he helped, he helped bring peace and put an end to World War II. But at the same time, he is critiqued for his approach to imperialism as well. Because not everyone's the same. Not ev just because someone did a good great thing that changed the course of history doesn't mean they're going to get a 100% adoration rating neither a 0% adoration rating unless of course you're Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini but the point is yeah it's even if in different sites right after the scene where Kane dies we get a news report 
of all the about the, his character, all the great things he did. It sounds very superficial and sensational, which is what yellow journalism is. From the perspective of the news, it's a fairy tale, but from others, not much. Yeah, and because you know, and that's how it's all about perception. It's all about and that's how propaganda or you know, forming public opinion opinion operates. It's whenever there's people in power, or you know, when they when they want when they die, or when they um, you know wants want their image to be a certain way. You have you have these outlets. You have the news companies that they own or control, and they control and they they create a specific image of oh, look. You know, look at all these great accomplishments. You know, it's like a PR thing. You know, public relations thing where they can do no wrong because they're the ones that control the newspaper, right? And so, um, and so it's, it's always about warping what people's perceptions are. But then when you actually, you know, talk to people that know them personally and things like that, of course, they're going to paint a different picture, different story of who they really were. And then, but news is a great example of that. You know, you look at like how they portray certain people, um, whether people of prominence or you look at how they treat people of prominence and how they treat people that are underprivileged or criminals and things like that, or people that are perceived to be criminals. And it's, it's night and day, you know, it's. They focus on when people are prominent. They usually focus on what they've done positively, and then when people that are not a prominence, it's always the things they're doing negatively. You know, they focus on that, and so it just plays on that how perception plays a role in society. You know, from the people in power, and it's just and the film does a great job of showing that because I'm assuming that that Kane own that particular newspaper that was running it and of course they're not going to talk bad about the person that no. that owns who that owns their company right, right. so of course so yeah they're gonna they're gonna highlight all the good things he did but then it's whitewashing or overlooking you know the kind of bad person that he really was right yeah that's another thing another reason one of many why the film will still hold relevance and it also really impacted me as a broadcaster as well because citizen kane is also a commentary on the power of the media the news which that power can still be felt today because yes newspapers today are not as valuable as they were before but like really when you go back then newspapers cost a lot of money but now you can get a newspaper for free at the train station very easily it's quickly easily accessible and but news journalism public relations there that's something that it's not a dying industry it still exists and it's not going away anytime soon and it can really influence a lot of people especially if news is handled by the right people who ha who have the right words know how to speak the people's language really appeal to them because that's what Kane is Kane is a talker he is quite the charismatic guy actually how he's able to win people over with his words how he wants to improve the lives of the poor the downtrodden he endears himself already to the people with his charisma which is every politician actor or powerful figures secret weapon really charisma 
yeah it's like there's a certain personality that that comes with being that that having that power there's a certain type of selfishness and a certain type of ego that goes into it and then when it applies to the news media and stuff like that well you know all these major news corporations they're all owned by these charismatic by these you know ego driven rich people right and so where the the agendas can their agendas can vary from you know some are more republican leaning some are democratic leaning but at at the end of the day they all have an agenda of what they want to put out because that's that helps their bottom line and that's and they want to change it's like they want to form society to their will or to how they think and so that's what the news media is basically uh about and yeah the the, my brother said a good he said um we were talking about it some years ago and i think a year or two ago or some while back and he said like the the old days of like authentic reporting like the walter cronkite type reporting are over Mm-hmm. Like it's all about what sells, what gets the most ratings, what's going to get people to look at the news, what's going to grab their attention, and go from there. You know, it's not about it's not really about going deep into what the truth really is. It's about how can we sell this package to people, how can we sell this news to people right. about ratings. Exactly. And so right from the get go, I mean. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's sad, but that's the reality we, look, we live in. That's why you have to be skeptical of what you see on the news nowadays. Mm-hmm. Not all the news is, not all the news is biased, but I would have to say like a majority, like over 50% is, like at least 60 to 75% is biased, in my opinion. Yeah, I So agree. you just have to be careful. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, again, that's yellow journalism. Yeah, it's more sensationalist as if everything is a radio drama, a political theater, in an actual theater. Like, your brother and yourself are right, because, yeah, there's been, like, a huge shift in values lately. It's not more about truth-telling, as Kane puts it. It's more this about merchandise. The name of the game is making money. Yeah, it's making money. It's because, I guess, I haven't, I'm not... A PR person or a, a focus group person, but I'm guessing that they saw that people like, and and th- and people say this all the time: lies sell better than the truth. Like you tell somebody a lie, if for enough enough times they'll believe it, but the truth doesn't. It's like the truth doesn't sell, or there's something to that effect. And so they're just using metrics, you know, like how can we make this money? How can we make a profit? And and so, and you, and you still do, you still do have meaningful, like, reporters that do care about the truth, yeah. But, you know, if the truth conflicts with, you know, the agenda of the top dogs, then, you know, you're going to be ousted or you're going to be like, you can't cover that story or you have to interview somebody else or they're going to they're gonna throw hurdles your way mm-hmm. because it's not conforming with what the narrative that they want. Right. Yeah, to quote Mark Twain, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. He's right. Mark Twain said a lot of good things. <laughs> a lot of wise, wise things. And, uh, yeah, it's just sad, you know. But, you know, that's and that's, that's industry. That's um, in a nutshell. 
you know i guess that's capitalism in a nutshell you know it's all about you know and that's kind of what this film is about too it's, mm -hmm. i think it is a critique on capitalism because you've seen the effects of money money and wealth on kane in particular but also the people that are in his social network his social his orbit is uh, how it's affecting his relationships and yeah it's just it's just something that you know just doesn't help the equation at all doesn't help anybody at all right. in the long run and then there's his quote his famous quote which he mentioned to thatcher i expect to lose a million dollars next year i believe and i will make uh, lose more money than i did in six in 60 years if that's the line because yeah it's more it's, it's all about the spending and it gets worse as he gets older as he spends money on these frivolous things statues he spends a lot of money to make an opera house for his wife based on a talent that she neither has the passion nor the skills to do so and yeah and, and this all happened his spending when he was younger happened during the great depression which was also really bad timing too so yeah Oh, the Great Depression and um, what he was going through. Uh, yeah, because he, he mentioned he, his spending on there were during the during the Great Depression uh, where, in that scene with Mr. Thatcher and when he was discussing how he'll expect to lose a million dollars next year. That happened during the Great Depression, if I recall correctly, during the setting of that scene. Yeah, it happened during the stock market crash. So, um, which I think was the great that led to the Great Depression. And so he had to sell his um, he had to sell his new his news his newspaper chain to make money because he he lost everything. And um, but then he was able to bounce back, I believe. Uh, I think he gained another line of wealth. And um, so yeah, which shows that you know it affected everybody that crash. Um, even especially rich rich and poor were affected by it. Mm. Um. But he was able to bounce back from it, so I don't think I think some people weren't able to. Yeah. And I guess that film was just showing how like Kane was unique or or lucky or special in that regard. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and also that's the thing too. The film. That's I mean, I know about the film. Most films tend to have like some kind of villain or antagonist, but Susan Kane is special because it's a film where there's really no antagonist it's mostly just man versus self really or the setting that he's in because money plays a huge role in citizen kane because the underlying message of citizen kane is that money can't buy happiness like that's the transition from as kane from a child to an adult he started with nothing but he was happy and by the end he has everything but he is unhappy Exactly. Um, I remember we were talking about it, I believe, on Facebook about it, and I was telling you my interpretations. It's really about the American dream. And and I guess I have to make a distinction here in that the American the American dream itself is not bad. You know, you come to this country, you work hard, you get success. But the problem is is that it's a, it's almost a materialistic type of way of thinking. And so naturally that's going to create people that think in material ways so because we have that dream yes it's a noble dream 
yes, work hard, that's good. But you're, it's like you're pinning all your hopes on getting that success. And so that leads to, um, that leads to unhappiness. That leads to unhappiness. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a dream. Right. That's what dream leads to. Right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. The, like you mentioned, the American dream isn't a good or bad thing, much like how capitalism isn't purely good or purely bad. It's all a matter of perspective based on the person you are as well. Cause, and that ties to the other theme of the film as well, materialism, because, yes, we know how Kane spends a lot on these very unnecessary, glamorous things, his Xanadu, and by the end of the film, he has no one left. All that's left is statues, which are inanimate objects. And that's another way I would call Cain. Some people in the film, Cain is described as a man who had everything his way, but then lost everything. And by definition now, Cain is basically a king without a kingdom. Yeah, that's what Zan was. If you look at the production design and the the shots and how they presented Xanadu, it's, it's like a kingdom, you know? It's like, um, what's a good example? It's like, uh, oh, there was one thing that somebody said, I can't remember. But yeah, it's like a lord over his kingdom. But the kingdom is empty, right? It's just him. There's nobody there to kind of grovel at his feet. There's no, or anything that's that he gained is all material stuff. It's, it's not going to last. It's just there. It's there to remind him of how great he is but it's that too will that too will go away and then you can kind of see it in the end of the film when the staff were burning i think they were taking stuff away from xanadu and they were kind of discarding it and it's like you had this kingdom but it doesn't really last you right it's just it's so temporary and ephemeral like so that's a great um message there that i got from the film and how your kingdom is really is really not worth anything Right. Now that you mentioned that, it also reminded me of this poem, which I'm sure you've heard before, Ozymandias, which basically a tale that says how kings, emperors, great people will lose everything in the end. The, the message being everything you built will fall. And that's Cain's ultimate fate by the end of it, really. So it's a pyrrhic victory, a meaningless victory. It's quite quite a great a great tragedy a tragedy yes but a beautiful one nonetheless and something else i've noticed upon rewatch is that our other protagonist in the present day anyway mr thompson he is like obscured by darkness we bear we don't see his face very much like why i i why do you think uh, that is uh, in, a, in a storytelling level for Mr. Thompson being uh, the reporter being obscured? Yes. I think it's because he's seen as, um, just off the top of my head, it's because I think it's twofold. I think it's the mystery that he's thrown himself into that is just it's so obfuscating that, you know, it represents that he's, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of engulfed in that confusion, that obfuscation because of solving this mystery. But also, I think it could be because 
the other side of it could be that he's a person that's not really he doesn't really have any influence he doesn't really have any you know clout he's just a regular reporter and so he's not the film can also just show that in that regard you know reporters love that of him weren't seen as um important but i think it's i think it's primarily that he's going into that mystery and it's so full of darkness and and that he can't really that it's you can kind of see how and at the end you can see why he, he just gives up right he gives up trying to find out what rosebud is anyway so i think it's a symbolism of him going into that that a journey of confusion and obfuscation ah so he is literally put in the dark in this entire mystery yeah and also I think that's what it is yeah it's, it's pretty good interpretation wow and also another way i saw it was since this film has two protagonists if you think about it in the past we have kane of course and in the present we have mr thompson and we have kane who is well charles roster kane he is a very very rich notorious well known and renowned almost like high class as opposed to Mr. Thompson, who is, well, a who is basically just a citizen, a very low-class citizen who you could pass by every day at work and you don't even think to notice him. He's essentially a nobody, which I think contrasts that whole level of, you know, the rich versus the poor, high-class versus low-class, which has been one of the critiques in capitalism as well, how the low-class have benefited very less as opposed to the rich again that's just my take on it oh how uh, how the alkane is different from thompson yes like two contrasting characters oh yeah definitely thompson is very much a hard-working middle class uh, working class type of guy he just wants to do his job there's no yeah there's there's no really ego attached to it he just wants to do a good assignment And, and also he's curious. I think there's this curiosity he has about Kane that I, I think is in the film. You know, and I think he's almost like the audience uh, surrogate. You know, of, he's a viewpoint character in the sense that who is this person? You know, who is Kane? And so we're, Thompson is like our our character that guy that we go along with on the journey, and he learns more and more about him. But then as you learn more and more about him, the more contradictions show up, the more confusing it becomes and it's just it's just um you know he gives up at the end <laughs> he, he gives up way too soon yeah he does and that's a great that's great for a film because yeah narratively speaking it's just it's so different from i guess other mystery films or how you do mysteries there's always a resolution at the end right i mean so many mysteries i mean gone girl Uh, the Girl on the Train, a lot of contemporary mystery stories, there is some conclusion, there is some solution, but this film just does, doesn't give it to you. Or it does give it to you, but it's like a bittersweet, uh, you know, ending. You know, like, the people, it's like dramatic irony almost, or like, mm, right. the audience knows what it is, but the characters don't. Right, and... I wouldn't call it, personally, I wouldn't call it a bittersweet ending. I think it's a flat-out downer ending because the, the answers to the mystery, well, 
not to us, the audience, but to the main characters in the present, has literally been burned, snatched away before they could finally decipher the clue. And Cain will forever be known as a selfish, egotistical man when the answer that proved he wasn't is now history, literally treated like nothing but disposable junk. And that... Yeah. Um, sorry, you're going to say something? Oh, yeah, and that's that's a great image because, you know, history, history is very biased. You know, you really have to do your own research and read up multiple books on multiple topics. Even on one topic, you probably have to read multiple books to get a clear picture. Uh, and then when it comes to these, especially, it becomes especially important when you're talking with people that have prominence, people that are politicians, people that are, are leaders, leaders. Because, you know, there's always a narrative that's, that's taught around them. But you kind of have to dig through it and find out, you know, who they really were, what made them tick. And so you can form your own opinion. So you're not just repeating what other people are telling you to, to think. Right. And so um, I like that. I like that you put it that way, because that is how real life is like, where you really have to, like, dig deep. But the sad thing is that many people don't want to dig deep. They just want to accept what was their what they were told and yeah. move on with their lives. <laughs> yeah, not everything is as cut and dry as they seem to think. But and also, I think it's a more. I like the ending they went for. For I think it's a a perfect ending as well. Much like how this is a perfect film because in real life, yeah, people like you mentioned are very complex. Everything is complex. Well, not everything, but not everything is solid. We're not gonna get a clear, solid conclusion to our questions we not we we don't have to get the answer we won't be getting the answers to such complexities all the time it's going to be a very hard process as well and that brings us to the next topic which is discussing what the main characters fail to notice the meaning of rosebud i'm just i was pleased that i wasn't spoiled by that before I watched the movie because the whole it was his sled at this point everybody knows what the twist is kind of like that Darth Vader is Luke's father or that Amy is a psychopath and is framing Nick for her murder but yeah let's dig deep into that for a while uh you first well first off I'm glad that you're because your, your case is unique because a lot of people are spoiled on it. I was spoiled on it but uh, I mean, and I, I wish I had your experience because where I didn't know that at all. So I'm really glad you had that experience where you didn't know what it meant. Um, but yeah, I still watched it anyway. And yeah, it's just, um, it's a great image. It's a great symbol because it's a symbol of his childhood. It's a symbol of the who he was before he became that person, right? How innocent he was, how playful. Yeah, he did attack Thatcher, I guess, but He's just a kid. I mean, like, he's kids do stupid stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. So, like, uh, and I think that's probably what added to the Thatcher's, you know, treatment of him. Who knows? It's a possibility. But, uh, but yeah, it's um, it's it's a great symbol because it shows you who he was before, and it's um, and you can kind of kind of sad because you can kind of see how he was ripped away from childhood i mean you can think i can think one good example of a temporary example is michael jackson 
you know, famous pop singer. But he did. He was not able to live his childhood because of the fame. And so it was. It was almost like a traumatic thing that happens, where these people are ripped away from living normal lives, but because fame and wealth was thrusted on them, their lives had to go somewhere else, and they weren't able to cope. They weren't able to cope with that. And but I think it's it's a good symbol because you know, like I said earlier, it adds to that empathy of, you know, okay, like the audience can understand why he's that way. And I think that's why the film has a lot of significance and, and power for an audience. Right. Yeah. And that's, I agree with that. Yeah. And also, if you think about it too deeply, Citizen Kane is a story about the death, the loss of innocence, how, which ties how money can buy everything. And it can be very dull and anticlimactic when you have everything your way a simple life is always the happiest life because a sled is not valuable it's a pretty mundane object you can see in every store but it's not the object itself but the significance it meant to that person because the last words Kane's last words rosebud he was like he was reminiscing his last thought before he died was a reminiscing of a time when his life was perfect the last time he was happy genuinely happy a very bittersweet end to his very well rather cruel life i'd say yeah it's a it's um it's it added a dimension to his character and it, it became it that's what made him a realistic character because like I said earlier, a lot of you, I'm telling you, if you dig deep into all these celebrities that are rich people or politicians that act mean or act a certain way, I'm, I'm telling you, like, they probably had a traumatic experience either or they had a rough childhood or something of that nature. And so because we're always trying to compensate, you're always trying to, you know, whether it's your parents that said you weren't good enough or, you know, and this and that or you're estranged from your parents, that can even lead to it. Um, and so my point is, my point is that your, your childhood and how you're raised informs who you become. And this film shows that a lot and, and in relation to Rosebud, in relation to his, you know, Kane's childhood. And um, it's just a great symbol because like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a symbol of happier times things that came before he was taken away from it. And it's like he's, it was a struggle for him to always go back to that. You know, he was never able to go back to that, being that happy. Right, yeah, it's also a message on basically saying you can go back again. It's also a metaphor for, for coming to terms with your, with your age, your own mortality, because I bet there have been many people at some point in their lives that they remember the times when they were kids, when they could enjoy life without a worry in the world, but as they grow older, they have too much burdens, too many issues, that they're looking back on a time when things were easier, much simpler for them. Oh yeah, definitely. I've, I've had that too, you know, like... I'm 28 years old and you know it's like you know you're adulting you know you gotta become your own person so i'm dealing with that and then um but yeah you know childhood is always is a good refuge for people because you know nine times out of ten you had your parents 
they they were treated you well they they fed you they helped you out and it's just it's there's a lot of uh peaceful there's a lot of peace in that where you didn't have all these worries right and then but hopefully you use that to 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 help you mature and to so that you can you can do that for your own children at one at one point and like i said earlier is that the reason that Cain just I guess why he re- he reminisced on that was because I don't think it was the burden that he was dealing with. I think it was just a connection that he was, he was ripped away from his parents. I think if he had a happy childhood and he still had the money, things could have been a little different. Mm-hmm. I think things could have been a little bit different. He still would have been rich, but as long as he had his parents and all that stuff, that would have that would have balanced things out a little bit, I think. But because he had Thatcher as a father, as a figure in his life, and he didn't see his mother again, I don't think he saw his mother ever again, or very little. And that's just that just messes you up, you know. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And also, it helps too. Another thing that really makes the entire twist ending that it was his sled is that unlike most films nowadays where they feel they need to add a twist just for the sake of adding a twist here it adds to something to the story and its themes and it helps too that it was foreshadowed beforehand because we get the flashback when he was a kid with the sled and after he goes with thatcher there is a a, a long lingering shot of the sled being buried in the snow which foreshadows everything that's to come for both Kane and the story yeah that's a great image that's a great thing that you caught um because it's just visual storytelling right there you know each scene in this film has great visual storytelling and that sled burying into the ground that's just that's just his childhood kind of being torn apart or being buried to how he was kind of forced to be an adult or he was forced to to uh, come to terms with that wealth sooner instead of you know him having that maternal support or parental support Which along the way it. yeah and so usually because you have, and it, it makes sense, right? Because you have that wealth, you feel entitled, right? You feel like, oh, I was given this, so that means that I'm important. And, that, and I think that's why parents are so important, because parents can help guide a child to a right way of thinking, of you know, instilling the right values, morality. Because he didn't have that anymore, he had the, and Thatcher was such a big figure in his life, that's what kind of warped his uh, his viewpoint, his worldview. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't help his case that his parental figures, Mr. Thatcher, and the other, Mr. Bernstein, weren't exactly decent. Well, Mr. Bernstein, he was a kind man, but he was a bit of a doormat because he he knows how Kane is, but he doesn't do or say anything about it. He simply indulges Cain rather than stop his behavior so he simply agrees is is a yes man to everything Cain does so he tells Cain exactly what he wants to hear and that is not really the best 
advice or parenting you can do to your kid or adoptee? Yeah, and that happens a lot. You know, a lot of people, some parents, they don't want to say no to their kids. I think it's because they feel they don't, because they have such an impact in their lives, they don't want to, they don't want the child to hate them because that would, you know, that would make them feel bad or, you know, they want to be seen as a good parent. But then again, it's like, you know, it is a great scene. I'm sure you've seen this. Have you seen Fences with Denzel Washington? No, but I am familiar with it. Yeah, there's a scene where, um, great scene where uh, his son, his last son says, basically says, why don't you love me? Why do you hate me? Or why don't you like me? Yeah, he specifically said, why don't you like me? And Denzel Washington says, I don't got to like you. I love you. I do I do things to I feed you I do this or that I don't need your approval I don't I don't seek your I don't need to give you my you know approval like you're a friend of mine or things of like that I'm doing things to help you to put a roof over your head so so I don't gotta like you I, I do things to provide, I do things to provide for you and so I think that's what um, parents should have that mindset you know some parents but it's all about oh does a kid does a child like me does a child I don't want the child to hate me and this and that. It's just, no, you gotta, sometimes you just gotta be a tough parent, you know, if right. you really love a child, you, can't you gotta always, be tough on them. Right, you can't always be, what is that saying? Spare the rod, spoil the child? Yeah, exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. You're right, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, and, because that's, yeah, that's what Mr. Bernstein does to Kane, essentially. He's sparing the rod, spoiling the child. And that brings me to another important character in the film, which is Kane's best friend, Jedediah. Because from my rewatch, both characters, Kane and Jed, are essentially opposites. They're like dark reflections of each other. Because Kane is a pure idealist, and Leland is a pragmatist. Is, he's pragmatic. He's he already knows he that Kane issuing the war against the, the against the Spanish is already a red flag. He knows that Susan is a bad singer, and he knows that Kane isn't exactly the great guy he intends to be. And but Kane refused. He cut all ties with his best friend because he keeps telling him what he doesn't want to hear. And if we compare the fate of both characters at the end. We have Cain, all rich and powerful, but then dies a broken, lonely old man. And then we have Jed, who he got fired, but he's living a pretty simple life at a retirement home. It's not the perfect life one would dream of, but it's a pretty simple one. And I'm sure that many people will end up going when we reach that age, of course, just a normal everyday man. Yeah, I love the scene when Jedediah, that's one of my favorite scenes when Jedediah is talking to Thompson. I just love how it's composed, like how the shadows are on his face and how he's just so chill. Like he's he's content with life because at that point, he, he did everything he could. Like he did everything. He tried to be a good friend of Kane. He tried to be a good reporter. And it didn't work out. And it's like, that's somebody that's content with, okay, at least I put in the effort. And... But I can live with that. I can live with a failure. I can live with things that happen. And I'm not going to let it get to me. And Cain just could not accept that. He just couldn't accept failure. And that's what led to his downfall. And 
So I just love that scene when Jedediah is talking to the reporter, especially the first scene when he starts talking about it. And that's one of my favorite scenes. Um, uh, yeah, it's just complete contrast between the two guys, complete. Right, yeah. I also love that scene where he tells Cain how he wants to be loved on his own terms. That is really a great scene of dialogue, basically telling Cain he's getting tired of his bullshit. And the other, which in which he doesn't even appear, but in which he sends Cain the envelope, which he ripped up his $25,000 check. That tells us something about Jed that he actually he has a conscience because he he doesn't care about the money it's more about principle something that Cain doesn't have really yeah and it's it seems like Jedediah represents uh, a reporter that's that lives in reality a reporter that and but also has a has a sense of morality because, and it makes sense, because if you're a reporter, and, well, in those days, they, in those days, they did kind of care about the truth a lot in those days, I believe. But nowadays, it's, everything is completely different. But, um, yeah, it's just, they're a good contrast. They're a good dichotomy between them. And Jedediah, I believe he does that because his ba I'm, I'm willing to bet his background is different, different than Kane's. I'm willing to bet that Jedediah did not come from a wealthy background, that he did not come from where everything was, was privileged and everything was given to him, he had, that he actually had to work for what he got. Or at least he had parents that probably were working class. Right. I'm willing to bet that's his backstory. And with that comes a certain way of looking at the world, a certain way of behaving and having a conscience and things like that. Right. And... And I guess because I guess the film is showing that uh, because he didn't accept Kane's offer of you know because it's like an integrity thing, right? You like, oh, I'll give you this money so you can do this, or you can hush money or whatever, do this for me. But then you kind of lose your identity, right? You kind of become you're just you lose your soul, or you lose like the essence of who you are. And Jedediah was defiant. He was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's a great character. That's a good... It's just a great contrast. But it also shows you... It has conflict, of course, but it also uh, shows you that there are good people. There are people that will stand up to people like him. Right, yeah. You know, like, you know at some point, enough is enough, basically. Mm -hmm. That's true, yeah, and yeah, Jed also makes for another audience surrogate as well for anyone who has to work really hard to get to this, like go to college, grad school, even work, and then we have Cain, because Cain, great as though he may be, he had his riches, his fame handed to him on a plate, he never had to fight for anything in his life. And Jed is someone we can all relate to. Jed is what represents to me what Cain should have been. He is like Cain's moral guidance, the thing that kept him together. But once Cain cut all ties with 
Jed and broke burned that bridge with him. I think that's the the turning point. That's when things started to go wrong for Charles Foster Kane. Yeah, it's just uh, it's like the catalyst that leads to the whole thing going down. That's what leads to deterioration with Susan. That's what leads to his isolation. It's just because he's, it's that pent up anger, you know, it's that pent up uh, frustration. And then when it lasts out, you see the effects of that frustration. Like people don't want to associate with you anymore because of what you've done. And everything just unravels at that point. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a great film because that was a great um, scene because that's what leads to the climax. That's what leads to, and that gives you context as to his death and then the circumstances of his death. And then, you know, how the hell's empire kind of just, you know, collapsed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, and at the same time, Citizen Kane, yeah, I personally, I, I wouldn't call it my favorite film of all time, but I definitely enjoy and respect the film because for its humble contribution to the industry. And it pisses me off when there are people who say, but this film is overrated, pretentious, or refuse to watch it because it's too old. Well, newsflash, just because something is old doesn't mean it's irrelevant or you know, outdated, because it's still, as we mentioned already at this point, it still holds relevance today. It still will and will continue to stand the test of time, because I think most people these days, they prefer films where, you know, that's more about the action, spectacle, impressive effects, rather than the artistic value. I just wish some more people cared about that nowadays. And also, they like stories that just cut to the chase, go straight to the point. Yeah, yeah. Well, the game, yeah, I agree. But uh, I have met somebody, um, I work with somebody on film, and he uh, he appreciates the film too. And he was kind of talking about, you know, it can be pretentious because I guess because Wells was young at the time. But I was just telling him, like, Wells was trying to be different, he was trying to do something. Because if you if you're an artist if you're an artist worth your salt, you're not gonna do what everybody else is doing, right? You're gonna try to do your own thing to, to to make yourself unique, and that's what Wells did so well, you know, and that's what he did very well in this film. But in, and but I think what's what gives this film its longevity is that he wasn't just doing it just because, like. All of those things he was doing, the unique things he was doing, was helping the story, and that's what—that's why the story is so held in such high regard, because the way it was told, it was a different way of telling it, and it was told competently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Understand. And um, and that's why the film was number one for me, because I mean, I think if you're saying it's pretentious, you're kind of looking at a surface level. I mean, there's a lot of. To really appreciate it, you got to dig deeper, and because the film is not just eye candy, it's not just oh look at this cool camera technique. It's there for a reason. Like everything in the film, technique, set design, makeup, editing, is all there for the story. Everything, and it helps the story. That's why it's number one for me. And that's another question I wanted to ask you. Like, 
we all know that Citizen Kane is your number one movie, but when you mention uh, number one film, do you mean as in if it, it's your favorite film or what you consider to be the best of all time or both, actually? Uh... It's my favorite of all time, me personally. But to say it's the greatest of all time, I don't know. That's because uh, that's I can't say it's the greatest because I've seen a lot of great films too, and I don't want to. I guess there's, there's a lot of reasons why I'm probably not gonna say it's the greatest because I don't want to overlook, you know, Kurosawa and like. Tarkovsky and the other foreign directors out there that have done great work. And then at the same time, a lot of techniques that, um, or a lot of the ideas that Kane used, I mean, not Kane, that Wells used in the film, they had they had a president, like you, you can see it like, um, of course the noir, the shadows and design and all that, they had German expressionists, German expressionist uh, origin. Uh, people were talking about, I read online that, um, the editing was kind of similar to Vert, Ver, Dija Vertov, the Russian Russian montage filmmaker, Soviet montage filmmaker from the 20s. So I guess in my opinion of what the greatest would be would be a film that I guess was more original or more, I guess technique-wise, that kind of did something radically different. Um, I still can't. I still don't know personally what's the what I think the greatest film of all time is. Um, I would have to like read up on it and like rewatch the movies and think about it. But I'm I don't want to say it's the greatest of all time though. I had something telling me not to say that. But it's my it's my favorite of all time though. Well, Emmanuel, let me tell you something. You just passed the test because if you you it's not the greatest film of all time. That was the right answer because. There is actually no clear, solid answer to what is the greatest of all time. It's all objective, much like how Citizen Kane is. It's all about the objectivity from the different perspectives of other characters. It's all a matter of perspective, really. You just passed the test. Yeah, yeah. And, like, there's tons of great films from all over. So, from around that time, I mean, Kurosawa was a little bit later than... Well, he, he his popularity is... A lot of popularity. His career was soaring in the 50s, so a little bit later after Kane. But um, yeah, you got, I mean, you got Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, that came out in like the 20s or 30s. Uh, that was a great film. You got uh, Stagecoach that came out, I think, two years before. John Ford, Stagecoach. So yeah, a lot of great films that were coming out at the time. Uh, but to say what's the greatest um, of all time, I don't know. That's that's hard. Uh, it depends on your preference too. If you, to me, me my preference is usually story and technical and technique, like camera technique and like story, and then dialogue and then character and then things like that. I think I need to watch a little bit more from the films to kind of reach that point. I think I'm close. To that I think I'm getting there, but. Because I've seen I've seen a lot, but I'm not there yet. Where I can say what's which one is definitively, in my opinion, the greatest of all time. Right. Good. Good argument. Yeah, and and yeah. Also, it helps that 
so many of the films we have today at Kane, succeeded Citizen Kane, many of the camera techniques from the Hitler cam, the fade-in, flashbacks, they would be utilized for many, many years to come. And Orson Welles, he, this is not the only film he's made. He's made, I know he's made like a ton of different films, 25, even 30, I, I think, but none, but he'll always be known as the guy who made Citizen Kane because that is his masterpiece, his magnum opus, really. It's what pretty much everyone who knows the guy knows him for. And I don't think, well, I'm, while I haven't seen his other films as of yet, I don't think that he'll be able to follow with Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is a tough act to follow for him. Yes, it is. It is um, it's, it's one of the greatest films. It's definitely one of the greatest films of all time. It's not the, I don't think it's the greatest. Mm -hmm. But um, because it's, and then for him, you know, it was kind of hard for himself because it was kind of a blessing and a curse because once your first film was a hit, it's kind of hard for you to, you know, or once your first film is so well received and so well regarded, it's kind of hard for you to kind of like reach up that level again. But he made a lot of great films. Uh, I saw The Stranger so a year or two ago, and it was a great film. Um, my next film I'm probably going to watch of his is probably Touch of Evil. I've been meaning to watch that. Uh, but, but the reason I think the film is so held with high regard is because of the techniques used, both narrative-wise and camera and like cinematography-wise, and just across all departments-wise. And um, I think that's why it's, it's so well regarded. Right. Why is it definitely on the list of all greatest of all time? Right. Exactly. List. And also another way it challenged and changed other di different films from the past is that most films back then, they had a plot with characters. But in Citizen Kane's case, the character is the plot. It's all about the character. It's the perfect example of a character-driven story at its core with every decision, the character's decisions, their past, their relationships with others. They are the, on top of the world, they are literally the face of the film, not the plot itself. Yeah, it's a character-driven uh, story. It's not really, there's no big, it's not like in its own genre, it's not like it's, yeah, it's a mystery. It's a mystery drama, I guess. But there are elements of like, I guess, political thriller, not thriller, but there are some elements of politics in there and things like that. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't fit like the normal genre of like a, either a thriller or like a, a like a suspense film or action adventure or, or things like that. It's just about a drama about this one guy. And so I guess Wells, in his genius way, to make to then a way to make it to dramatize it, he had to you know create this mystery around it and create these characters and create this world with Herman Mankiewicz of how um, how this character related, had his relationships with other people, and how he how his life affected people and affected the world stage and society. And uh, yeah, it's unheard of. It's it's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, Non-conventional. Yeah, this everything about this film is not conventional. 
I mean, especially it was especially non-commercial at the time. Now people are just, I guess, copying it or you know, trying to do something similar, I guess. But, but yeah, it was just unprecedented, you know, this film, what he did. Definitely, yeah. It's the best kinds of stories too are the ones that tell us a bit about ourselves too. Because Citizen Kane is also a story about the human condition, about our flaws, our vices as reflected by Charles Foster Kane. It's, it shows us a glimpse of who we can be and who we ought not to be as well. No, I agree. It shows you, it's like a cautionary tale. It shows you an insight of how these, how these people tick, how, they, how these rich people, people in power tick, how they operate. But it also tells you about you know, the American dream and how the bad effects of it that can that it can have on people. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it will yeah, this is a film that is practically untouchable. It really cinema was forever changed because it was at that point I think in the 40s almost cinema was essentially a teenager after it was discovered in the 1870s by the Lumiere brothers, but now cinema has found itself a, a voice essentially. It's and really set the standard for all films that would come today. And keep in mind, this was also way before the era, the age of Stanley Kubrick as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is unheard of. Um, this guy was 24 years old. And then he delivered a film that was incredible. It's a tough act to follow. But I guess it also inspired other directors, inspired other artists in the, in the film industry to, you know, bring, put, bring, uh, bring on the mantle and do their own thing, too. Mm -hmm. and see what they can add to the conversation. Exactly. And on a final note, above all else, Citizen Kane, it also showed that anyone can direct, can tell a story, make a movie, because not just the professionals or the auteurs, but also someone who's very young and just started making his very first film, a newcomer, a novice is the right word. Yeah, and, you know, innovation can come with, with being young, because you're untested, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're going in uncharted waters but then again wells did teach himself he did learn like there are he didn't know there are rules it's not like he just went in there and just said oh i'm just gonna do what i want yeah he knew he, it's like it's like what you hear all the time know the rules before you break them right like he schooled himself on what you should do in a making a film how does the scene work how the editing works all that stuff and uh, but he was able to combine it in a unique way to tell his own story in a unique perspective. Right, that's true. And he fit that to a T as well. And and he did he did it all just for the art, telling a story just for the sake of telling a story. And but when it ca first came out, Citizen Kane was talked about everywhere. But in later years, it faded into obscurity, but it got the proper attention it rightfully deserved in the 50s because of a French critic, I hear. Yeah, um, French, I forgot the guy's name. 
but he he praised the film and that's what led other people to you know rewatch it and then and then people were like wow this actually is a good film and it uh it um and home and home media sales were pretty good for it later and later on uh, uh later on down the, throughout the years after it, the film came out decades long long uh, long line and so that can happen so you see that with some films sometimes you know they go in obscurity then one critic looks at it again and then that drums up interest and then people look at it and like wow this is actually pretty good and so they reappraise it oh, that happens a lot with some films I'm glad it, ha- it happened with this one because this is a film that does deserve to be reappraised mm-hmm. and um, yeah it's just an amazing amazing movie it is every sense of the word yeah and that is all the time we have left for today's episode. I think we pretty much covered everything we need to for the film's 80th anniversary, don't you think? Yeah, I think we did. We covered everything. We covered the character, the techniques at play, the themes, and the significance in cinema. So oh, yeah. I think we did a good, we did a good, uh, worthy, um, um, worthy talk discussion of its 80th anniversary thank you i'm glad glad to have you here emmanuel you'd be you're the ideal guest for this as well given it's your favorite film of all time and and then then there's your status as our show's citizen king as well and yeah until then that's all the time we have left thank you so much emmanuel for coming here we missed you uh, your return here on the city yeah, yeah, I'm glad I can. I'm glad to be back. I love I love being a guest on here and talking films with you, and it's amazing. And uh, I know you're you're the sole host now, and you're doing a great job. And you're gonna I'm looking to looking to for future more episodes in, in the future. Gladly, I'm looking forward to looking forward that. to it. Looking forward to it as well. Until then, thank you, man. You're very welcome. And until then. See you next week, same time as always, here on Sin City, live for feel-out images and cmru.ca. And bye-bye.